worshiping together today, siblings, I invite you to turn in your Bibles or Bible apps to the Gospel according to Matthew, the 25th chapter, beginning in the 14th verse. Again, it's like a wealthy landowner who was going on a journey and called in three workers, entrusting some funds to them. The first was given $5,000, the second, $2,000, and the third, $1,000, according to each one's ability. Then the landowner went away. Immediately, the worker who received the $5,000 went and invested it and made another five. In the same way, the worker who received the 2000 doubled that figure. But the worker who received the 1000 instead went off and dug a hole in the ground and buried the money. After a long absence, the traveler returned home and settled accounts with them. The one who had received the 5000 came forward, bringing the additional five, saying, you entrusted me with 5,000. Here are 5,000 more. The landowner said, well done. You are a good and faithful worker. Since you were dependable in a small matter, I will put you in charge of larger affairs. Come, share my joy. The one who had received the 2,000 then stepped forward with the additional two saying, you entrusted me with 2,000. Here are 2,000 more. The landowner said to this one, cleverly done. You too are a good and faithful worker. Since you were dependable in a small matter, I will put you in charge of larger affairs. Come, share my joy. Finally, the one who had received the 1,000 stepped forward and said to the landowner, knowing your ruthlessness, you who reap where you did not sow and gather where you did not scatter and fearing your wrath, I went off and buried your thousand dollars in the ground. Here is your money back. The landowner exclaimed, you worthless, lazy lout. So you know that I reap where I don't sow and gather where I don't scatter, do you? All the more reason to deposit my money with the bankers so that on my return, I could have it back with interest. You there, take the thousand away from this bum and give it to the one with 10,000. Those who have will get more until they grow rich, while those who have not will lose even the little they have. Throw this worthless one outside into the darkness where there is wailing and grinding of teeth. Receive what the Spirit is saying. Thanks be to God. We are blessed to have, to have you here today. And uh, I know we'll be blessed now as Reverend Jenny Phillips brings us a word. Thank you so much, Reverend Ginger. I I just want to share with your congregation, I got to know Reverend Ginger while I was in seminary, and we were both at Christ Church, United Methodist Church in New York, and she has always been 
a friend and a mentor and a model for what ministry should look like, and particularly a model for women in leadership in ministry. And so I am honored and humbled to be here in her congregation with your congregation today. Please join me in prayer. Creator God, all creation sings your praise. Open our hearts that we may feel, that we may know the urgency of your call to protect all that you have made. Amen. As Ginger shared, I serve at Global Ministries, which is the worldwide mission and development agency of the United Methodist Church. Global Ministries supports more than 200 missionaries and has partners and projects and personnel in 115 countries. As part of Global Ministries, the United Methodist Committee on Relief, or UMCOR, is the global humanitarian aid and development arm of our denomination. Much of the work of Contemporary Mission focuses on addressing problems caused by the broken relationship between God, humans, and the earth. So in Mission, we support sustainable agriculture in places that are food insecure and that have histories of conflict and oppression. We provide health care in places with deep infrastructure challenges. We provide services for people experiencing forced migration from their homelands. We respond to disaster and support recovery in places hardest hit by extreme weather events that are exacerbated by climate change. We seek to alleviate suffering. Our creation story in Genesis says that human suffering is rooted in the distorted relationship between God, humans, and the earth. In that creation story, God offers the first humans food from an abundant garden. God says, have as much as you could possibly want to eat from this garden of Eden. But God also sets a boundary. God says you can have whatever you want, except don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Well, you know what those first humans do. They cross that boundary God sets, a boundary that was meant to limit their consumption of the earth's resources. And in doing so, they break our relationship with God. Now, I, I want you to really hear this, that that first rupture, that first sin, isn't just any kind of sin. It's the sin of overconsumption. God tells them to eat their fill, and they say, great, and also I'd like some of what's over there, please. They take more than they need. They take more than God wanted them to have. And then even as they are cast out from the garden, their children learn that natural resources are a source of power among humans. They raise generations of humans obsessed with controlling food and land and lives, even as the earth cries out when their blood is spilled and their habitats are ransacked. The shards of colonialism and racism and plunder are embedded in the lattice of our spiritual DNA. Those of us who are white come from people who have leaned way too hard into that aspect of our spiritual histories. We have built communities and wealth and even our churches on the backs of black people, indigenous people, and people of color. 
and we have built our communities and our wealth and our churches on the groaning lands and seas of ravaged ecosystems worldwide. Some of us here today benefit from the fruits of that exploitation. And now we are resistant to breaking the cycle, lest it costs us our place in the world as we know it. But of course, the world as we currently know it is no Eden. Colonialism left generations of many humans and other creatures poorer, sicker, and weaker. Then exploitation of people and the earth went into hyperdrive with industrialization. And with industrialization came human-induced climate change. Now let me take a quick detour here to just review with you how climate change works. When we look up at the sky, we see this limited expanse. We, we perceive the cosmos. But between us and outer space, between the Earth and outer space, is this thin layer of gases, a blanket of gases called the atmosphere. And one of the important jobs of the atmosphere is to stabilize the Earth's temperature. Now, when the sun shines, it sends light energy to the Earth. So the Earth absorbs some of that energy, but some of it is radiated back out into space in the form of heat. But we have that atmospheric blanket that keeps some of the heat in. As we add more gases to the atmosphere, we call them greenhouse gases, more heat gets trapped. Those gases thicken our atmospheric, lake, atmospheric blanket. And so just like when you add another blanket to your bed to stay warm and it holds in more heat, so too, when we add more gases to our atmospheric blanket, we see global temperatures increase. And as those temperatures increase, that heat energy changes weather patterns, destabilizes weather systems, and we see more frequent extreme weather events. In the DC area, scientists say that that thickened atmospheric blanket means hotter summers. They project that the number of heat wave days in your area will increase from about 10 days per year to about 60 days per year by 2050. Heavy downpours will increase as well, and that will mean more inland flooding. And on the coast, we expect between two and six feet of sea level rise by the end of this century. These changes are creating crises in low-income and high-income communities alike. But like with so many challenges, it is low-income communities and communities of color that suffer most. This deepens the need for humanitarian intervention. We must ensure that our short-term interventions contribute to long-term environmental health. We have much to do when it comes to addressing the environmental impacts of ministry. We're just beginning to understand the ways in which we, through our ministries, have contributed to the suffering of future generations through practices like building structures without thought to energy efficiency, relying on diesel generators in places with limited energy access, and investing our assets in companies that do harm. The more we learn, the clearer it is, we must transform how we do ministry. The Global Ministries Theology of Mission says that God's mission begins with the act of creation and ends with the shared redemption of all creatures and all of creation. 
This means that Christian mission must begin and end with the mandate to ensure the flourishing of all creation, both human and non-human alike. This is why we must address eco-recklessness in our ministries. Eco-recklessness functions in ways that resemble other systems of oppression, maintaining a status quo that privileges certain types of power, behavior, and practices. It pits human against, humans against creation, pretending as though one has no need of the other or as though it were possible to meet the needs of one without meeting the needs of the other. It affirms the theologically distorted view that God gave humans limitless power to dominate over and consume the resources of the earth at any cost. While examples of individual eco-heroism and creation-friendly initiatives abound, formal and informal structures of church institutions exhibit eco-recklessness at every level. Not just church agencies, but all of us. We need to stop using environmental initiatives as one-off projects to celebrate on Earth Day and start recognizing them as life-saving strategies that are necessary for a healthy world. Given the clear scientific consensus that human activity is the primary driver of climate change, it is reckless for churches to dump greenhouse gases into the atmosphere through their ministries without regard for their impacts. So what would Jesus say about all this? He doesn't talk explicitly about climate change, but he does talk about how we manage resources. While Genesis contains the story of our broken relationship with creation, Jesus presents an alternate vision in an unexpected place, a story known to many as the parable of the talents. This story, like other parables, is an allegory, a story with a concealed meaning. Many people assume that this parable should be interpreted as a teaching on how to manage financial resources. Indeed, the version of the text that we heard this morning from the Inclusive Bible uses the word not talents, but dollars when referring to the resources that were put in the care of, of the, um, the people. Others suggest that the talents should represent our literal talents, our gifts and skills that we are supposed to use according to God's word. But what if we considered a third possibility? That the talents represent not economic resources, but rather ecological resources that God has placed in our care. Perhaps in this story, the wealthy landowner is God, the owner of all creation, leaving us each with varying levels of access to the earth's resources. God gives us these resources to manage for a while, and if we fail to ensure they flourish under our care, there will be a lot of suffering. This perspective is consistent with the passage that follows. It's the passage in which Jesus says that those who feed the hungry, give drink to the thirsty, welcome the stranger, clothe the naked, and care for the sick are the ones who will inherit God's kingdom. We can only help the most vulnerable among us flourish when all of creation flourishes. We can't feed the hungry without access to healthy, affordable food. We can't give drink to the thirsty without clean water. 
We aren't going to welcome the stranger if we feel like we have to compete with her for resources. And by the way, Jesus ends that passage with another promise of suffering for those who don't heed. I think this means he's serious. Well, I do have some good news. Many of us who manage resources on behalf of the United Methodist Church are getting serious too. 11 United Methodist agencies, including Global Ministries, announced this week on Earth Day that we have committed to work together to reduce greenhouse gas emissions and support a just and equitable transition to a renewable energy economy that builds resilient and flourishing communities. The heart of the commitment is this. We pledge to achieve net zero emissions by 2050 across ministries, facilities, operations, and investments, and to leverage the gifts of our connection, putting equity and justice at the center as we build a net zero emission economy by 2050. I really want you to hear this. We are going to eliminate emissions across ministries and facilities and operations and investments, and we're going to do it in a way that ensures equity and justice. This is a serious commitment to systemic change. The agencies that are making this commitment are involved with stewarding the global physical, financial, social, educational, historical, and political infrastructure of the United Methodist Church. We're making plans to radically transform our stewardship to ensure that we aren't contributing to suffering around the world in our efforts to alleviate it. We believe the changes that we make in the next 10, 20, and 30 years will reverberate throughout the denomination and will impact people and ecosystems globally. To be clear, we have made this commitment not because we know exactly how to do it, but because we know who we are called to be. There is no map for this journey. I have looked. So we're starting with hard questions. Some of the questions we're asking at Global Ministries include, what does this commitment mean for all the travel that we do, given that we're engaged in the work in work all around the world? What does it mean for our disaster response work in places where power grids are destroyed and diesel generators are the norm? What does it mean for our health clinics in low-income places in the world that rely on kerosene lamps because they don't have electricity? What tools and techniques and strategies will we need? And how are we going to pay for them? These are uncomfortable questions because many of the answers necessarily require significant changes to how we do our work. What we're saying with our commitment is that it's time for our agency to face these uncomfortable truths that come with measuring our impact and tolerate the discomfort we feel over the coming years as we figure out how to ensure our ministries contribute to the flourishing of people and creation in the present and in the future. We have quite a bit of hope this is possible in part because we're working with our partner agencies to leverage each other's resources and wisdom to support each other. And we're already engaged in pilot projects to help us learn how to do this work better. 
We're sending vaccine refrigerators powered by solar panels to health clinics in Liberia. We're solarizing a hospital in Congo. We're doing energy studies on health clinics in Africa. We're looking at strategies for displacing diesel generators with renewable energy in the context where we work. And we're doing the work in our own office as well with basics like making sure the thermostats are set at the most energy efficient levels possible. And we're discerning how to measure our current emissions across ministries so we can evaluate our efforts to reduce them. Scripture suggests that our consumption drives people out of the garden and away from God. And it confirms that that leads to wailing and gnashing of teeth, ensures hardship through heat, drought, fire, floods, superstorms, forced migration. For many vulnerable communities, climate change means life as they knew it is already over. If the way we respond to this need undermines the flourishing of God's creation for the long term, then we're simply contributing to the suffering we're trying to alleviate. We must do ministry in ways that ensure the impact of the short-term good we do is greater than the footprint we leave behind. I can't help but read in the parable of the talents that even a commitment to net zero emissions isn't enough. It's simply maintaining. Jesus would have us ensure that not only do we maintain the resources with which God has entrusted us, but also ensure that they flourish. Our footprint must be less than zero. We must not simply stop harming God's creation, but also restore it. So what would it look like for the United Methodist Church to be a leader in the restoration and flourishing of God's creation? Perhaps our churches would look more like a new building that recently opened at the Georgia Institute of Technology. The Candida Building for Innovative and Sustainable Design at Georgia Tech was certified as a living building this week. This means it is a regenerative building with emissions that are less than zero. It doesn't just not harm the environment. It also contributes to its health. It generates excess electricity and drinking water for the campus, and it's at least 60% more energy efficient than other campus buildings. The project included habitat restoration. The property grows food and native plants and is home to honey beehives. Friends, these types of strategies are strategies that we can all incorporate into our buildings and our properties and our missions and our ministries. What creation most needs from Christians right now is to figure out how to tolerate the horrible discomfort that comes with recognizing our brokenness and the ways that our brokenness has become institutionalized in systems that fail to account for the costs of waste and pollution. Because it's only when we can tolerate looking directly at our hypocrisies and our failings that we can confess and repent and call for the collective social, political, economic change that our world needs in order to move towards sustainability. And that change must be systemic. While examples of eco-heroism abound, even at the local church, there is so much eco-recklessness. 
we must take action to stop dumping greenhouse gases into the atmosphere through facilities and operations and ministries without sequestering those emissions because they exacerbate so much suffering. I know we don't mean to cause harm. And I know that acknowledging the harm is upsetting and overwhelming. But starting to tell the truth about it is actually kind of liberating. And when you start to look at strategies for making your operations and ministries efficient and regenerative, it's exciting. It's a new mode of ministry. The practices that lead to change are going to look different for everyone. You've got to look at the ways in which you're investing your resources, your time, your energy, your money, your wisdom, your spirit, into helping the world flourish. And you have to look at the ways in which your inv investments are causing great harm to God's creation and consider how new ways of doing ministry can contribute to justice, both for God's people and for God's creation. So this Earth Day Sunday, I ask you to pray for our agencies and support us as we begin this systemic change. And I ask you to begin to consider the ways in which Foundry could do even more than you already do to express your commitment to justice and wholeness and flourishing. I'm excited for your kids' Earth Day bags. I'm excited for your Going Green program. I also think you have it in you to do much, much more. I believe Foundry can be a church that ensures the flourishing of the resources with which it has been entrusted, not just mitigating harm, but cultivating life in all its forms. That you can be a church to whom the great landowner says, well done, you are good and faithful workers. Come and share in my joy.